The military needs to adopt synthetic training architectures that are modular and open, that allow these architectures to change as the character of warfare changes. Within the modeling and simulation community, they aren't necessarily privy or part of the discussion on what our future course should look like, which can lead to a lack of more disruptive thinking on their side. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter, at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Jennifer McArdle, adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and product strategist at Improbable, a commercial gaming company bringing innovations from the gaming world to defense simulation. Jennifer will be talking to us about the future of the synthetic training environment, flexibility and scalability in training systems, and the critical need for a new agile approach to training that can keep pace with the dynamic character of warfare. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Jenny, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, we're really excited to have you today. Uh, You've been a big part of Mad Scientist. You have a really interesting background coming from being an academic, looking at like allied defense cooperation, nuclear deterrence, cyber defense, and AI. And now you're leading the Center for New American Security, or CNAS's, a new American way of training initiative. How did how'd you get here? So my work in training was incredibly fortuitous. About seven years ago, while working at a think tank, I got put on a project that explored allied approaches to live virtual and constructive training, or LVC, with a former commander of the Royal Canadian Air Force. So I ended up crisscrossing the globe with him and interviewing training providers from Australia to the UK, France, and Canada, among other places, on the kind of programs that they had underway to facilitate LVC. And so shortly after that, I received um, a grant at the Center for Strategic and Budgetary Assessments to combine my cyber background. I was actually a professor teaching cyber-related classes at the time um, with my knowledge on synthetic training to start to assess how we can provide cyber training to non-cyber warriors. So essentially looking at how you can train for that kinetic, non-kinetic integration. And to me, you know, that was absolutely fascinating. So while research and writing on this for CSBA, it became the genesis of my PhD topic, which really looks at the adoption of synthetic environments, so virtual and constructive environments that really empower multi-domain training and decision support. And I kind of realized um, more than just researching these really innovative training architectures, I also wanted to be involved in the development of them. I wanted to help create them. So I joined a startup called Improbable that's bringing these really exciting innovations from the commercial gaming world to defense so that we can start to build these far more complex synthetic environments for wargaming training and decision support. And I actually know um, Improbable has hosted the UK Fight Club, and I know you had those guys on your podcast recently. So it's great to be um, working somewhere where, you know, they're working kind of hand in glove with the warfighter. And, you know, all of these kind of experiences set me up to lead a, uh, this new training initiative at CNAS, because when we think about the future of training, it isn't just about technology. It has a lot to do with different conceptions of how we might fight in the future and how that 
might drive new content deployment methods and training architectures. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about the new American way of training. So can you kind of expand on that and get into the details for our audience? What's the optimal outcome for it? So the new American way of training initiative is basically trying to drive an entirely new dialogue about the future of training. And in many ways, when we were brainstorming and developing a rough framework for the, this initiative, we really looked at the Cold War as a model. So during the Cold War, protracted peacetime competitions, sporadically interrupted, uh, interrupted by cycles of intense combat, like in Vietnam, you know, it's inspired a series of paradigm shifts in the US's approach to training. And these shifts gave birth to like a range of innovations from the Navy's top gun school to the Air Force's red flag exercise. And it significantly altered the Ar Army's combat training centers. And basically like a new level of stress and rigor was introduced through radical transformation and training regimes, basically helping to ensure American warfighters tactical and operational dominance. So we at CNAS think we're at a similar inflection point today. The technologies um, and asymmetric strategies of countries like China and Russia really put into question a lot of the assumptions that undergird America's current way of war. So that is a way of war that's largely predicated on uncontested power projection, the ability to operate from sanctuaries, all domain dominance, and overwhelming technological superiority. So these changes, when you couple them with innovative technologies that are really unlocking new training opportunities, it really provides a fresh avenue for us to reassess present training regimes. And that's kind of what we're trying to do. So I guess from an outcome perspective, there are really two things this initiative is trying to accomplish. So the first, of course, is to surface the content capabilities and technologies that will provide our warfighters through experiential learning, that agility and creativity that will help them prevail in future competition and combat. And some of that involves us rethinking and embracing future synthetic training architectures. And then the second is organizational. We're really trying to push change within the DOD so that training reform is a key part of the discussion uh, when we talk about our future force. I, I think that's really important um, as we kind of focus on perspective on this. And as you pointed out about the inflection point of um, we're, we're kind of looking at this whole new concept and not not a new concept an old concept coming about again um where we are going to be challenged across all these domains um this isn't going to be uh the oif oef of the past where we're kind of used to air superiority and and not being challenged across these areas now looking through the concepts for new american way of training Future synthetic training architectures. That sounds really complex and maybe a little labor intensive. What do architectures like that? What does that mean for the military? That's a great question. So the military needs to adopt synthetic training architectures that are modular and open that allow these architectures to change as the character of warfare changes. And, you know, in my mind, a focus on modularity doesn't mean adopting complex solutions that require us to Frankenstein things together. It's adopting far more elegant solutions that allow us to simulate the complexity and changing nature of conflict, as you said. So I guess, like, what does that mean for the military in practice? I think a good example of this is to think about, as you said, the future multi-domain fight. So we should start 
looking at future synthetic training environments as a place where you can, you know, perhaps somewhat counterintuitively get that fidelity that you can no longer get in the live environment, particularly when you're training for future operations that are subject to adversary cyber, electronic, or informationized effects. So obviously right now, for pretty obvious reasons, we don't incorporate live cyber into live exercises. The integration of live cyber effects into a training environment could risk sabotaging the entirety of an exercise, it could present safety risks to warfighters and local civilians, or it could expose platform or system vulnerabilities to those ever curious adversaries. So instead, in a lot of training events, the military uses white cards, which is the literal use of a note card to inject in friction. Although this provides warfighters some insight into how their systems or platforms could be affected in the event of the cyber attack, that lack of realism precludes them from experiencing and subsequently troubleshooting that attack. And you, know, all of these kind of problems could be circumvented through high fidelity synthetic training. So modeling and simulating cyber effects in a synthetic training exercise should provide warfighters some insight into how a cyber or informationized attack will impact their system or mission. So we need to create training experiences where warfighters experience the effect of a cyber informationized attack on the system or platform and where they have opportunities to find creative or new routes to victory. So basically it would train them to maintain the initiative in a degraded environment what my colleague at, um, at CNAS, Chris Doherty, calls maintaining degradation dominance. So when I think about future synthetic training architectures, I'm basically thinking about how we adopt modular and open architectures that allow us to more easily integrate different models that simulate that future battle space so we can really get that realism and fidelity and that experiential learning. So it sounds like we've got a pretty good handle on at least identifying the systems and the architectures, but now we need the people to work those. So in your opinion, do we need to focus on finding the right talent or do we need to be designing the training that fits the latent talent that's already out there? What do you think? I I think it's a mix of both. So it's certainly true that the skills that will help us fight and win an increasingly contested and complex battle space dictates that we continue to attract technical talents that will enable a far more informationized force. So obviously AI developers, computer programmers, hackers, big data analysts, EW operators, among many others. And the military's definitely made strides to adapt recruitment practices to um, attract that talent. Um, But at the same time, we now have technologies that can provide a far more targeted learning experience for individuals, helping to cater and personalize learning experiences to their needs, whether that's the pace of their learning or their specific learning style or the best method for delivery. And then also, you know, data-driven initiatives like what the DoD Advanced Distributed Learning Initiative is doing with say SHATS, those kind of programs should also better surface latent talent within the DoD. So right now we're not the best at placing individuals in military professions that really exploit the skills that they have. And that's partially because we may not be aware of all the skills that that individual has. And so by digitizing learning experiences and records and capturing far more data about their learning journey beyond, you know, the brick and mortar JPME institutions, the military should be better equipped to take advantage of skill sets that are often overlooked um, with current promotional and placement practices. We absolutely love hearing that because that was 
one of the biggest takeaways, we uh, had a conference at Georgetown University on learning in 2050 uh, and actually featured uh, Say Shats there. Um, and it was a really great opportunity for us to kind of understand, hey, the talent is there, but maybe it is latent. And how do we identify that talent? How do we cultivate it? And a lot of that was exactly what you said, which is personalization of that learning because we all learn in such different ways. Um, and so to not waste the talent that exists within the force, we can start to uh, modulate that and, and be able to kind of put it all together for those folks. I think I think you have great points already. And you actually wrote a great piece for the Mad Scientist Laboratory with Caitlin Dorman titled From Legos to Modular Simulation Architectures, Enabling the Power of Future War Play. Can you explain that piece just a little bit to our audience? Yeah, so um, right now, many of the synthetic training systems that are in use by the military, they're legacy systems. So they're old and they reflect past training needs. And the fact that they're legacy systems isn't necessarily problematic in their own right. What is problematic is that many of these systems are monolithic. So that means that that one system is responsible for the entire simulated world to the, include the simulations, visualization layers, physics, pathfinding, and artificial intelligence. So monolithic offerings, they basically confine training designers to that system's modeling and simulation offering. And that offering may not be representative of future conflict. So for instance, some simulation offerings may lack cyber information or space models, and they basically would limit training scenarios to more traditional domains of air, land, and sea. So what the military needs to do, and I know I've previously said this, is essentially design their future synthetic training systems around modularity, much like Lego bricks, hence the title of the article. So you can swap in and out interoperable models that better represent the changing character of warfare. The problem right now is that the services are locked into working with vendors who make these monolithic tools. So as with other technologies that are built for the DOD, it's not really an industry's interest to make interoperability and modularity a priority. The DOD's modernization efforts really need to lead the way. DOD needs to make clear that it's a priority and a prerequisite to doing business um, with the military. The DOD is just gigantic and obviously the, the larger U.S. government is even bigger, um, you know, biggest employer in the United States. Do you think when dealing with a huge organization like that, is flexibility or scalability more important? Uh, that's a good question. So in terms of what's more important, flexibility or scalability, I don't really think it's an either or proposition. So arguably the DOD should aspire for a system that gives them both. Um, something that I don't think is, is aspirational because systems designed around modularity that distribute compute can do both. So obviously we want a flexible architecture that allows us to swap in and out models so that environment changes in tandem with the changing character of warfare. So you're not stuck with systems that you know represent old ways of fighting. Um, and then likewise, like you can get scalability that can support hundreds of thousands or even millions of entities, which is key if you're, if you're trying to simulate the density of the urban environment or the sheer number of space assets involved in a multi-domain fight or say amphibious operations. So I think, you know, you want to have these, like, these flexible and scalable architectures that allow you to simulate whatever it is that you need to simulate to meet a given kind of training and goal. So yeah, I would aspire for something that gives you the capacity to do 
both. And I, I just genuinely don't think that's aspirational, but the technology exists. I think that makes sense. Uh, usually with a system like this, you can't have one and not the other. It's 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 kind of like growing a plant. What's more important, sunlight or water? Well, you, well, you need both. You can't deprive it of either. Um, when we look at the New American Way of Training, it's a progressive, iterative initiative. But from your early indicators, what's the linchpin? Where, where does, you know, what, what does success for the system rely on? Is it the tech behind the synthetic training environment? Is it reorganizing and transforming the learning, training, and education systems in the government? What is it? I genuinely think the linchpin, more than anything else, is organizational. We may have great technology, but without the requisite organizational reform, both in terms of how we conceptualize the future force, but also in terms of acquisitions, we're just not going to exploit it to, to the capacity that it could be. And I guess another piece of this when it comes to our, our initiative, um, particularly when it comes to training, is there are pretty pronounced silos between the modeling and simulation communities. So that's you know the technical community that's really charged with building these robust synthetic training environments in the defense policy community. And this is problematic as it can create misunderstandings in terms of training types and technologies within the defense policy community. But I think you know more pronounced is within the modeling and simulation community. They aren't necessarily privy or part of the discussion on what our future course should look like, which can lead to a lack of more disruptive thinking on their side. So I think everyone could really benefit from a cross-pollinization of ideas. Another key part of this initiative is to bring these communities together through working groups, because when you start to break down silos and create more interdisciplinary groupings, uh, you can start to surface far more nuanced and potentially disruptive ideas. And, you know, hopefully those ideas start to think about how we can kind of shape and change um, organizational practices. Um, from the top down. I think those are excellent points about uh, the need to break down those stovepipes or the firewalls that we build up between those areas, because if we're not marrying up the concepts, if we're not marrying up um, how we want to fight with the training that we're going to use for that fight, uh, we're, we're going to end up failing. I think that because of your background, you know, you kind of have a foot in both worlds uh, from coming from the academic side of the house, you and I met at uh, Salve Regina, you kind of get a different perspective than what we might see from, say, a career army officer. So what are we missing? What are the army and the DOD as a whole just not thinking about or paying enough attention to right now when it comes to training? So we, we tend to discuss the broad contours of what our future course should look like and the platforms that are in development or what we should procure to shape the future force. But training, in my mind, is often an afterthought. In fact, you know, I asked a submariner several years ago about why this was the case. Why is training consistently an afterthought? And his response to me was really simple. He said, you know, weapon systems are sexy. Military platforms are sexy. Training just isn't sexy. And as a result, I just don't think training has been a core part of the discussion about our future force, and it really needs to be. So I realized my initial response to your question isn't entirely fair because it's rather broad, but I don't think we within the DOD writ large, and I'm certainly aware of great efforts within the Army, with the STE, but generally, I don't think we've been prioritizing training the way, the way it deserves. And I guess to get a bit narrower, here's why I think that's a problem. So a lot of the technologies that could undergird our future training infrastructure could be reused and deployed in different contexts as we think through our future force, whether that's wargaming or experimentation. So I guess think about this. 
If we took a platform approach to synthetic environments, we could basically facilitate the entirety of what Peter Perla, who's kind of the godfather of modern wargaming, considers the cycle of research. So the cycle of research looks at how you can facilitate this analytic ecosystem from wargaming into modeling and simulation, experimentation, and theoretically training. And you could have the same technical platform-based capabilities undergird those early ideational seminar war games and have data and models reused from those games and through matrix games and more rigid war games and through modeling and simulation and then experiments, whether that they're synthetic or LVC and finally into training events. And this would allow us to surface so much more from an analytic perspective when thinking about our future force, but it would also ensure that our training experiences are closely tied to new concepts of operation. And then, you know, at the same time, when you're pushing model and data reusability in a platform-based context like this, you'd be saving money. The DoD could purchase a model once and then reuse it versus purchasing it over and over again for these different events. Do you think there's a potential to use these uh, simulations as ways to explore the future, to find things that we haven't already thought of to think about adversarial problems from a different point of view and to find future possibilities. Does that make sense? Oh, with, without a doubt. I mean, one of the beautiful things about simulation, particularly now that we can um, exploit far more complex simulations, is it allows you to explore what if questions. So you could theoretically run um, one simulation simultaneously, you know, thousands of times and to be able to explore the breadth of different outcomes based on that one what if question. Um, it should allow you to kind of identify those black swan events in a way that you know we might not be able to right now. Um, it allows you to like better kind of think through um, you know various scenarios. Uh, I think you know simulation is one of those kind of technologies that allows us to really not I don't want to say predict the future because I think that's too strong, but it allows us to gain deeper insight and more thoughtful kind of insight into how things could theoretically play out and to be far more proactive in addressing those kind of things. I think that's a fantastic point because one of the things we talk about a lot is we're not trying, you know, with mad scientists and overall looking at the future operational environment, we're not trying to predict the future. So Dr. Soren Lung always says that uh, point prediction is a sucker's bet. And so we're not trying to predict it, but looking at those potential high impact, low probability outcomes really helps us to think about the future and frame our thinking. So I just think that's a great point, Jenny. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's wonderful because, you know, when we when we do think about the future of Mad Scientist, it's kind of open-ended. But if you have this simulation that is can wrap that open-endedness in sort of a rules-based environment, um, you can get more concrete answers out of it. So it's kind of the next step from, hey, let's just blue sky something to, to, to okay, now let's put it into the simulation that has these rules in it and see what happens. So that's awesome. Um, we also like to give our guests here a chance to talk to uh, the next generation and kind of give them advice from their foxhole. So let's say you're talking to future soldiers and army civilians and, and other enablers who are in high school and middle school right now. What advice do you have for them? How do you think they need to think about learning and training? I guess, you know, as a former professor, I'd encourage them to see training and learning as a lifelong endeavor. You know, we're moving away from brick and mortar institutions towards point of need solutions and experiential options that should be part of their day-to-day -day life throughout the entirety of their career and beyond. And it's so easy to take advantage of different learning opportunities now, whether that's on your mobile phone and, you know, a ton of things are free. 
So take advantage of these opportunities, be an active advocate for your learning experiences, seek them out because there's just so much available and it's only going to get better. And then certainly, you know, as the DoD rolls out far more digitized learning records, take advantage of that. Make sure those records um, capture holistically your learning experience because it'll allow you to communicate the entirety of your skill sets, whether that's in the military, in the DOD, or whether you know, you're know you transitioning into the civilian world. Yeah, I think if the, the past year and a half hasn't made it abundantly clear, you can accomplish things from across the world. Like you're two time zones away from us right now, but we're having this discussion and we're learning a lot from you. So I think that is really something to think about in the future is that that old paradigm, I think for all intents and purposes is is gone by the wayside. And I think your point about uh, lifelong learning is especially prescient in you think about the army and the fact that uh, we just fought 20 years of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism. And so we have commanders who are highly, highly experienced in this area. Um, and although they understand the fundamentals behind large scale combat operations and potentially more hybrid warfare, um, they haven't had the uh, chance to experience that yet. And so uh, we're dealing with a lot of senior officers and, and senior enlisted who now kind of have to continue to learn and grow and um, get ready for, you know, a very different form of warfare. So uh, this has been just a fantastic conversation and we love having you. Uh, We want to transition to what we call our rapid fire questions, tells our listeners a little bit more about our guests uh, and helps to get to know them some. So our first question is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? I think authoritarian countries dabbling in gene editing and physical enhancement is pretty scary because it's clear they have no ethical quandaries. You know, U.S. intelligence has shown that China has conducted human testing of members of the PLA to enhance soldier performance. And this is something that we in the West and Western scientists see as profoundly unethical. So it's pretty worrisome for what that means for future battlefield advantages, but also, you know, the unknown consequences of manipulating human genes. Yeah, I think that's a great point. You know, one of the things that we've talked about in the past is um, kind of this ethical asymmetry. So uh, not to say that they don't have ethics, but they're very different from ours uh, and and potentially valuing the quote unquote greater good um, over what is personally ethical. And then, um, you know, you look at examples of them looking for which ethnicities uh, within China are best for operating in Arctic conditions. And uh, I don't think you would ever see at this point in time, uh, the U.S. Army or anybody like that looking at which ethnicities would operate best in in certain areas. Uh, So excellent point. So what is something that you're willing to share on the air that most people might not know about you? So I'm a former rugby player. I played open side flanker and my rugby career came to a very unceremonious end during a friendly match with the ladies of West Point in Cambridge, UK. So I was one of the lone Americans playing with the Brits and one of the West Pointers jokingly told me the night before that she was going to take me out and she did. I ended up in the hospital uh, with some of the ligaments torn between my collarbone and shoulder uh, but it was, you know, all good in the end. I met everyone at the pub after uh, when I got out of the hospital and I couldn't get my cleats off. So she helped me get them off. And then she bought me a pint of beer. So that is fantastic. As a former mediocre lock, I recognize what that 
uh, as my rugby career came to a similar unceremonious end with an ACL tear. So uh, it, it usually doesn't end with you walking happily off the field. <laughs> yes. Yeah, as someone who hasn't played rugby, that sounds like the most rugby story. <laughs> you, you got a huge injury and then you met everybody at the pub for a pint. All right. And uh, for, for Matt and I's favorite question, what is your favorite movie? Oh, without a doubt, it's Gladiator. It's such an epic film. And after 21 years, it just remains my favorite. Fantastic. Love it. Hey, uh, Jenny, if you could share with our audience, where can they follow you and uh, where can they follow uh, New American Way of Training? Sure. So you can find me on Twitter at jmccardle one um, if you are interested in CNAS is a new American way of training initiative. And if you've got cool ideas that you want to share, I love to hear from people that, you know, want to, you know, provide their thoughts and expertise. So you can certainly email me at jmccardle at cnas.org. I think those are probably the two best ways to get in touch. Absolutely. Thanks so much for coming on, Jenny. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's been a real pleasure. And um, I, I do look forward to hearing from everyone. I know you've got a lot of brilliant listeners, so please do reach out. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Jennifer McCardle, adjunct senior fellow at the Center for a New American Security and product strategist at Improbable. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.